Welcome to the Profitable Public Speaking Podcast. I am your host, Mark Aberti, the content marketing expert, bringing you two new episodes each week where I and top-level guests teach you how to get on more stages and make a profit from your public speaking. And when it comes to profiting from public speaking, a lot of people say that on that road, you have to do a lot of speaking gigs where you don't get paid. And while this is a route that a lot of people take, we do have to think about how can we get on these stages that pay us. And that is something that um, can really catapult your career because you're making money uh, on all of these stages. And today's guest who joins us today, he actually does just that. He gets on stages and he gets paid to speak on them. So today's guest, who are we talking to today? He is a multiple-time TEDx and Mo Mondays speaker and host of the top-rated Conversations with Passion radio show. He has interviewed over 4,000 of the world's top leaders in search of the traits that set them apart. The award-winning keynote speaker travels across North America to speak to audiences, both small and large. Today's guest, for episode two of the Profitable Public Speaking Podcast is none other than Corey Poirier. Corey, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Mark. And wow, I'm guest number two. I love it. So cool. I, uh, I think it's cool because I, I get to be the headliner over guest number one. <laughs> but great. I love being guest number two. That's so cool. <laughs> Corey, I'm so happy to have you on the show. And uh, just for context, uh, Corey and I, like I've interviewed him for a summit. I've met him at New Media Summit. So we know each other pretty well. So I know that this is going to be quite an awesome episode for all of you listening to the episode. Uh, But before we get into the nitty gritty, like, you know, getting on these stages and getting paid to be on these stages, Corey, can you just share a little bit with us on your backstory of why you became a public speaker? Yeah, 100%. It was truly... I'm going to say a happy accident. So it was by accident that I became a speaker. Uh, I I share this story and other speakers say, dude, you know, I've heard all kinds of stories about how people get in. Haven't heard that one yet. And so my situation, and I won't go too far into it, but the gist is I basically was terrified of the idea of being on a stage. You hear the story about people all the time that covered in sweat. This isn't their calling. They're scared. (laughs) You know, and it's the number one fear in the world about death, they say. Uh, So it's understandable that people are that scared. But I was that guy. And so what happened was I wrote a play, a stage play, and directed it. Uh, I wasn't in the play because I didn't want to be on the stage because I was terrified of being on the stage. But one of the actors sprained his ankle, so I had to write a part for me to give him extra time to get backstage to do his costume changes. And so then after doing that play, I was still terrified of being on the stage. I asked one of the actors and said, any ideas for how I can get comfortable doing this? And he said, I heard about the stand-up comedy workshop at the university. Mm-hmm. And so I already told just number one fear in the world, but I said, sure, let's give it a go. So I basically went for a two week workshop. I didn't really learn much about speaking or comedy. And then what happened was the third week, we filled a club by marketing the show. And the idea was we were gonna watch people on stage and then learn from them. And then we found out, and this is the part about the happy accident or where I get tricked into this, but we found it was five minutes notice that we were the actual entertainers. Mm-hmm. So the guy didn't tell us until five minutes to showtime, there was nobody coming. It was us, the people that were in that workshop that were going to be performing. So eight people walked out the front door from that group of the workshop that had paid to be there. Eight walked out the front door, seven stayed. I was one of the seven that stayed. I jumped on the stage first bombed horribly like I told two jokes and they didn't go over at all I just met with dead silence 
uh, only to find out that I hadn't turned the mic on yet, so they couldn't even hear me, oh. meeting the audience. Wow. Uh, so I got the mic turned on, and we started over, and I told the same jokes again, and they bombed again. So I've said before, I'm probably the only comedian who's told the same jokes in 10 minutes twice and bombed both times. <laughs> uh, so that's that's kind of the happy accident, Mark, of how I get into into being on a stage. And then the shorter version is from there is I was doing comedy every week. I liked some parts of it. I didn't like a lot of parts of it. And then so what happened was I discovered this little thing called public speaking, which had a lot of what I liked about comedy and didn't have all the things I didn't like. And so I slowly started making the transition over to speaking. And that's really how I get into speaking. And for a while, I did both at the same time. And eventually the comedy dropped up, but I kept doing speaking. So that's the story, Mark. And it's interesting Corey mentions comedy because I've heard a few people say that if you could do stand-up comedy, you could do any kind of public speaking because comedy is certainly really hard to do. Something I've never done. I've never done the stand-up comedy. I'm fine with where I am as a public speaker. Like I could get on a stage and do my job because, you know, I've been on a bunch of stages. But, I mean, if you're new to public speaking, if you want to just get into it, stand-up comedy, if you do that, you could do any kind of public speaking. So, I mean, I really like that story. That's something that I'll probably not hear any kind of variation uh, to that story because it's just so unique. Um, so, I mean, now you're a public speaker. Like, it's what you do. You go around North America. You speak to all these different places. And I'm wondering if you could share with us, um, like, the beginning stages of your public speaking in regards to free versus paid. Did you go for a lot of free ones in the beginning and then transition to paid? And uh, can you also talk a little bit about how that transition from free to paid worked? Yeah, 100%. Uh, so interestingly, Mark, and this still ties into that, that story about how I get into it, is, and this is probably why the story is unique, because let's be honest, there's some stand-up comics that have started, you know, have been comics for years and then said, hey, I like this speaking thing, it pays more. And then they start doing speaking as well. But the difference I think with me is that I had no intention even being stand-up comedy or speaking. I get tricked into it because I just was writing, I was a writer and I found it was the only way I could get my message out on stage. And so that's an important distinction I think because I had no, like I liked watching stand-up comedy but I was never saying I wanna be a comic and I never said I wanna be a speaker, it was all, full-on accidents and truthfully it's probably not accidents right it was meant to happen there's some synchronicity there but to answer your question about how it started once I made that happy accident into speaking what happened was the one thing I had going for me and I you know I'm gonna say that I was really lucky in this way because I, it wasn't any kind of special insight that I had at the time but I had been selling photocopiers door to door at that point. That was my career, selling photocopiers. You know, before I got in that career, I didn't even know that you could make a living selling photocopiers or it was even a thing. And, but I, that's what I was doing. And so the thing that served me really well is when I was selling copiers, I was working for, always worked for the um, direct manufacturer. So I never worked for, uh, let's say, a reseller. I always worked direct for the company. Like, so I worked for Toshiba you know, the company that makes the laptops and all that, Konica Minolta, company that made the cameras for years. So I worked for them, that my paycheck came from them, not from a reseller. Why that's important to the story is because I had to sell value because I was never the lowest price. When you're with a company where you have 50 employees and m most of your competitors are resellers, so they buy and sell, buy the product from you and sell it, uh, they might only have three people in the whole company. So they can charge a lower price because they don't have to carry all this overhead. So for me as the salesperson, I had to sell why the company should want to come with us as the direct manufacturer versus going with a reseller. Uh, so I had to learn how to sell value, not just lowest price. So the only reason that comes into the story 
is because when I get into speaking, I said, unless I start from the beginning, selling my value, when I want to get on stages, then what's going to happen is that people are going to expect uh, me to come in for free. So I knew that I had to start setting the tone. Uh, so to answer your question, Mark, as to how I did that, what I did was my first couple of talks, I knew I couldn't go out and say I want to get $1,000 or $5,000 or $10,000 for a talk. So what I did instead is I went out to the companies and started doing a trade. So for example, uh, I worked with a gym. So this fitness group that had nine locations. And what I did for them is I said, look, um, this is one of my early talks. They reached out to me. I said, this is one of my early talks. I'm not expecting you to give me, uh, you know, the fee of a keynote speaker that's been doing this years. But I said, I know that you guys have gym memberships, 90 day gym memberships that you sell. So what I want is I'd love to have three 90 day gym memberships that I can give out to future clients and a testimonial if you like my talk. So that was my first real corporate talk. So I didn't get paid in dollars and cents, but I still got a value for my talk. And the guy ended up sending me a reference letter, not just one testimonial. And he gave me like in that reference letter, I had like five different testimonials I could use in different places. And he had a really big name in town. So that held a lot of weight. So that was probably worth more than the amount of money he could have paid me for the talk. So to answer your question, what it looked like early on, I knew right from the start, I had to set some value on my time, even if it wasn't a full dollar amount. And then, so then I worked with, I remember a restaurant group. And then basically I said, how about you uh, buy me a gift certificate for X amount of meals at the restaurant. And then I could, when I'm on the road during the day, I can have like a certificate there that I can uh, buy down meals with. I can actually use as a credit for meals. So that was a trade I did. So I was doing trades right from the start, but then it wasn't very long. Like, and I say it wasn't very long for context purposes. It was probably less than three months. Then I was starting to charge a little fee. So $250, $300. Then I got a gig uh, teaching at the local college. And so I charged them. Again, it wasn't what a normal speaking fee was. I think I might have charged them like $700 every time I put on a course. But what happened was from that is I would put on like a three-day course and people that would see the advertisement because the college did a lot of advertising would say, we can't send all our staff out during a day because we can't, uh, uh, you know, we can't take stop work to send people out. But what we could do is bring this guy in and then have half our staff at 10 in the morning and half in the afternoon. So then the college was like, sure, you can reach out to him directly. And they gave them my contact info. So that started getting me some leads, but because they were gonna pay at the college and I knew how much they were gonna pay per person, then all of a sudden I could say, okay, well, you were gonna pay for let's say 10 staff members at $300 a pop, which is say 3,000. Well, what I can do is I can even come on site for you, do the talk there for 1,500. So it told me, you know, I can give them 50% less than they'd pay and at the same time, I'm still getting, what, 150% more than I would normally get from those early talks. So that's what my early talks look like, Mark. It was really a lot of trying to figure it out on my own, in the trenches, what I should be charging. And I set it knowing that I couldn't charge thousands at the beginning. So I just built my way up. Like, I actually staggered my way up. But I will give something to somebody who, you know, I want to give insight to somebody who's saying, what do I charge or how do I know when to charge it? So here's the one thing I did do early on as well is I was handing out evaluation forms for the sake of you being able to see it. This is a copy mm. of here. And those evaluation forms I hand out during talks, well, what I did is I used to say, what is my ratio? What is my approval ratio? How many people are approving it? Like, how many people are saying you did a good job? And early on, I was probably around 65 to 70%. And so at that ratio and number, I felt I can't charge thousands of dollars. I said, I need to be at 85% before I can charge over a thousand. And so that's what I did. I just 
focused on my craft until I got it up, you know, 65 to 68, 68 to 70. And when I say this, I mean consistently. Because I would have, you know, one of those that'd be like 90%, but the majority would be 60 to 70. So I increased that so that eventually, you know, 10 out of 10 talks, I had over an 80% approval rating. And once I got to that level, I said, okay, now I can charge in the thousands. And I had to decide what in the thousands that was. So I think I started at 1500. Like I jumped from say 800 to 1500. I didn't stop at a thousand. I just went above that. And then the next stage when you start increasing is when you have things like I'm seeing behind you, Mark, like books with your name on it, or you have, uh, you write articles for Forbes or entrepreneur, those kind of, or testimonials from really big companies or client names that are big, or you're on a bunch of media. That's when you start increasing from there. So to me, to get to the thousand dollar ratio, you need to have a certain skill level. So again, you can look and say, what's my percentage of approval rating from clients? Use that as your measure. And then once you get above a thousand, then I think it's all of a sudden it becomes about your credibility, your brand name. If they bring you in, what can they promote you as in your bio? Can they say you're a TEDx speaker? All those things then reflect on your fee going higher from there. I hope that helps because that's a really big window into my early stages of it, trying to figure it out. Yeah, I mean, I'm really, that, that was literally going to be my follow-up question. Like, how do we figure out what to charge? And it's good you mentioned how you, you started at 250, something to just prove, like test the concept. Hey, can I actually get paid for this? This is something people would actually want. And then you're able to level it up to thousands of dollars later. Uh, mentioning like getting a lot of people to say yes we like Corey with those forms getting those testimonials to TEDx is certainly a big factor one that I definitely want to hit upon later because I feel like it's it's the uh, holy grail for public speakers one of the things I do want to talk about is uh, we talked about you know how you charge for uh, your speaking but I feel like in some like you definitely want to look to make a profit uh, for the stages you're on especially uh, if you're a public speaker from a business context, because some people view it differently. Uh, so I think one of these silent costs that is associated with public speaking is traveling because you got airplane, you have hotels. So, uh, I mean, if you're making like, you know, in your case, like thousands of dollars to speak on the stage and that's fine. But for someone who maybe they're starting off at 250 uh, per gig, like what's your recommendation for that person? Because you know, airfare and hotel, that could be $1,000 depending on where you go. So great question, Mark. And my answer is a, a really simple one. Now, and now this is anything I share with you, like any, you know, any career profession, there's no absolutes. Like anything I tell you, there is always going to be, it depends. You know, there's always going to be a uh, dot, dot, dot onto it. There's always more than just what I'm going to share, but sharing from my perspective, and this is going back to those early days, uh, especially in those early days, I actually made changes and I'll explain what I mean by this. <laughs> I have more, made more changes as I got longer into the industry around travel than I did early on. So early on, if you're doing a talk, it might even be no fee because we talked about that too. You mentioned no, doing a talk for free. Whether it's no fee or whether it's $200, the key thing is if you're traveling to another place, that will be on the client. So what I mean by that is I wouldn't do, my own opinion, again, this is the, my opinion part. I wouldn't take the talk if you had to pay more to travel to get there than they're paying you for it. Mm. So it should be $200 plus travel basically. And that includes a hotel that includes the flight. And if you're only getting $200, that should include even your transportation there and your meals while you're there. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would say. And in fact, you're going to find more clients uh, that, that can actually pay the travel, but can't pay a speaker's fee. Like that's, that's actually what they expect. So most clients should be comfortable saying, okay, well, we'll cover your travel. Their challenge usually will be, we can't also pay you thousands of dollars at the same time. But that should be the expectation. And the good part is, depending on where you're traveling, but if you're traveling, say, within Canada to Canada or the U.S. to U.S., 
the flights aren't that pricey. I mean, most cases, you know, if you're flying from big cities, especially like LA to San Francisco, I just, I booked a flight from LA to San Francisco return yesterday and uh, my flight is $132, you know, so, so, and that's return. So my point is that a client, if they're not willing to pay $132 to bring you there and return you home, then it's probably not a good fit because you're never going to have any good end result from working with that client because they can never they can never hire you again or pay a higher fee if they can't pay the fair fare to get you there so my first answer would be uh you should expect for that kind of talk that they're going to cover the airfare now here's the it depends part because there's also talks where people are saying well we're going to give you this platform to sell your product or we're going to give you the stage to do that there's other circumstances and i think this should be reserved for after you've been doing it a while but if you've been doing it a while or you have a, a your own business that is really humming and, and making great money and you don't need the speaking revenue and you can cover the cost to get there for the return then i would the potential return then i would say hey go all in if you want but for somebody just new and that sounds like who we're talking to here i would say that don't even look at those opportunities where they're saying, you know, you get yourself here and we're going to give you a great platform because my experience is nine times out of 10, the platform is never as great or big as they promise. So I would focus on doing talks that are local. If somebody won't cover the travel, getting that lower honorarium or $200 or what have you do the talk that's not local and charge a fee for travel. Here's where for me, I started changing it. So the funny part is you would think it'd be the opposite, but I was early on. That was non-conditional. I wouldn't waive the travel. Now, the interesting part is as I got bigger into the business and as my fees increased, I would make circumstances where I would waive the travel. And I'll explain what I mean. You might think, why would you waive the travel if you're requesting it when you're just starting? It's because there's times whenever the client might say, for example, um, it'd be easier for us if we had an all-inclusive price. And then so I would tell them, well, okay, I'll do an all-inclusive price, but I got to work in my travel, all everything, right? The travel, the accommodation and all that. So I'm going to build it in a bit higher to cover myself in case the flights go up. So I might do it that way because I actually can make a little bit more money on the travel and take care of it myself. And I can get a, maybe a more favorable flight for me than they might book me otherwise. So I might decide, I'm still getting my travel covered, if you see what I mean, Mark, but yeah, I'm building it in. I'm not saying it's separate for travel. But you can't do that if you're doing a no-fee talk. You can't build it into zero, right? I mean, it's either, if you're doing a no-fee talk, you can't say I'm building it in and now I'm charging you zero, but the travel's covered because it's not. It's, it's, if you're doing a no-fee talk or $200 talk, then I think the travel has to be covered on top of that. But if you're eventually doing talks that are $8,000 and $10,000 and the travel is going to be $500 and they say, we just don't want to deal with a separate travel cost, you might say, okay, I'm going to build in $1,000 and then I'll just charge them. Instead of $8,000, I'll charge them nine. So then you're covering your travel, but it's still built into the deal. So you're not covering it out of your pocket. It's just you're paying for it maybe up front and getting it back by the time the talk's done. And that brings up a second thing that I should say, because I don't want to confuse people. And you can tell me if you wanted me to go here, Mark, but on how you get paid, like when you get paid. Because when I just said you're paying maybe up front and getting it later, I don't want people to then think I'm saying you're paying for everything as soon as you book it, and then you wait till the day you speak or after you speak to get paid. So did you want me to talk about how you can make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, that, that, I mean, like, I, I feel like just before we do that, just like to double down, I feel like Corey's sharing a lot of great stuff. I was initially going to ask, well, you know, if someone's new, they want to get anything they can get. But I mean, if you're, if it costs you a thousand dollars to speak, that's not the model that you want. So uh, definitely like really great insights from Corey, but I'd love if we could explore deeper on that topic you mentioned. Well, and, and to that point, Mark, yeah, I mean, I think 
the big, again, it depends. You'll see me say that a lot because there's never absolutes, but I think that it depends as if you're new. So if you're new, I never, that's my own opinion again, but I never advise somebody to pay to get on a stage or to pay to get to a stage if they're brand new. Like if you don't have the funds to do that and now you're borrowing from your parents to go do a talk or you're, you're using up everything on your credit card to go to a talk that you might never get a penny from, I don't, that's not a good recipe for business. That, most entrepreneurs wouldn't recommend that. So that's, that's what I'm saying there. Uh, when I said about when you get paid though, this is another thing. You just said a key thing. You're early on, you'll take anything because you're trying to get some money through the doors. Well, the other factor is you need cash flow. So if you do say four of these talks, and now if you're doing a talk at $200, that shouldn't be an issue. I mean, some clients, if they trust you, they'll pay the $200 the day you book it. But once you start getting into four and 5,000, even, even a thousand, um, you got to start saying, okay, am I willing to, cause this is what happens. And I didn't know any better. So when I first started, what happens is you do the talk and then you think, okay, well I'll do, I have to do the talk before they pay me anything. And then the client will say, well, what's we'll, we'll pay you after the talk. And here's the problem with that is once you've done the talk, they have no hurry or vested interest or emergency to get you the money because you've already done the talk. They're onto the new thing and they may have good intentions, but they're just like, I'm too busy for that. Or right. then they go on vacation. And what I found is early on, I was chasing payments after I've already done all the work, I prepared, I got there, I did the talk and I'm still chasing payments. And so I said enough, enough, enough's enough. I got to figure out what the industry norm is. And because I was, as we call it, in a silo working on my own at the time, I was just doing my own thing. I didn't have any mentors to go to and say, what's the norm? So I just assumed the norm was to be paid after. But once I dug into it and started finding out the norm, I found that the norm is to get 50% uh, up front. So, and, and to me, when I say up front, I mean, when we're talking about a booking, I'll tell them, you know, to lock in the booking. So yes, I have the date available to lock in the booking. Uh, we need to lock in the deposit. And everybody expects 50%. I've gotten bold lately. I'm doing 60% just to see if I can do it. But 50% right. is the norm. And so what that means is that when I'm booking with a client, then I'll say, you know, industry norm. And, and I mean, I don't even have to say that unless they kick up a fuss. But I'll just say, you know, the deposit is due at the time of the booking to lock in the date. And then the remainder is due on the day of the session. So what that means is but before I talk, I get 50%. So I know I've got nothing to lose now because if they, for whatever reason, went into business or whatever, or canceled the talk and it says right in my thing, if you cancel the talk, then it's not refundable because I might not have time to get a new booking to replace it. Mm. So then the second part is getting paid on the day of, I, I'm going to knock on wood, but say part of it's maybe picking the right clients, but I've never been stiffed on the day of the event. Like I've never had somebody say, I've had a couple of people say, ah, oh, crap. We forgot the checkbook at the office, but they even while I'm on stage will go get the checkbook. So I've never been sort of stiffed with somebody saying, uh, oh, we didn't remember that. Cause what I do is I remind them a few days before I say, oh, I just want to double check. Who am I supposed to get the remaining payment from one of there? Cause I don't want to put anybody in the spot or make anybody uncomfortable. And I don't want to ask that question while you're in the busyness of it. So I remind them just before the event. So I have a, a process like that. I even offer a bit of a discount if they pay that and I'll, I should not to jump ahead, but so the point is I get the deposit up front, 50%, the remainder on the day of the talk. And I, that's the industry norm. So I recommend everybody does that. Now the extra part is I even go one step further and say, why not get your deposit as quick as possible? So what I use now, 80% of my clients pay this way in Canada, I would say a large percentage also pay by email money transfer, which is a big thing in Canada, bank to bank. But the ones that can't pay that way, the rest pay with PayPal. So what I do is I actually, when I, a client says, let's go with it, I'll say, uh, is credit card payment work okay? And I say, if so, I'll give you a little bit of a discount because it means I'm getting my cash flow that day rather than waiting for a check to come in the mail, which may take months 
or may not clear, or all those kind of things. So 99% of the clients are cool with going credit card now. So what happens is I send them a PayPal invoice for the deposit, they make payment. Usually within the same day or by the next day of them agreeing, let's go with it, I have payment in my account from for that deposit and then there now what i've done in the remaining booking uh, if i want to try to get that with paypal as well i'll offer them uh, a little bit of a discount again and i'm talking like less than five percent but a small discount if they're willing to pay a few days before i'm even there because it takes a few days for the paypal to get into my account and so 90 percent of them are doing it now so it means i'm getting 60 percent up front and i'm even getting my remaining payment before i step through the doors so they paid me the whole amount before I've even done my talk. But the, it's because I have a big track record so they can look at my website and say, this guy's not gonna screw us over, he's not going anywhere. Mm. But the point of that is, even if you don't have that track record, if they're wanting to bring you in and they trust you enough to say we're gonna hire you, you should be at least able to get your deposit in advance and then the remainder on the day of the event. So hopefully that addressed all that so you don't think I'm saying wait to get paid until after you paid it all up front. The great part too, and you can tell them this, the reason I want to deposit is because I'm going to be paying everything in advance and preparing everything in advance. And then they go, oh, yeah, he's paying for the travel if, if you're paying for it out of your deposit. Uh, that way, at least, then you can have it all covered. And you have more – the idea is you should have more in your deposit than what it would cost you in any way, shape, or form to get to the event. Yeah, that's really great advice because some pe a lot of people, like they think, you know, it's that big check you receive at the end of the event after you talk, but then you got to chase people uh, if they don't come through right away. And especially if you turn this into a career, you don't want to be chasing like 10 different people uh, for speaking that you did in the past. So that's uh, certainly a very interesting point. I know earlier we talked about uh, the TEDx because I feel like that is what every speaker wants to have in their uh, profile, like that ability to say that I was a TEDx speaker. So I know you've done some TEDx's. I know you've helped people uh, do TEDx's. And I know that, you know, if you have TEDx, it definitely helps you charge a higher fee. So I wanted to figure share how exactly do we get on that big red dot? <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, Mark, something that just popped into my head about that other one, and I won't, I won't stand, stay here long, but another benefit of getting the deposit, because this just happened with me. Uh, I had a client who they uh, were running an event and it was open to the public and they didn't get the numbers they wanted. So they decided to postpone it to the following year. Well, they had already paid me my deposit, which was non-refundable. And so I waited a month until after they were, you know, dealt, dealt with all the stress of having to cancel the event and said, hey, are you planning to run it next year? And she said, yeah. And I said, awesome. I said, because it would be great to apply the deposit toward next year. So then what happened is I was able to get it because it was early enough to uh, notice. I was able to book another talk in for the one I was originally going to do with them. And then I also now have a booking for this year from that same client. But I don't know that that would have happened if I hadn't had the deposit already locked in. So it's like they've already paid me half the money. So it's now they only have to pay the other half to still bring me in. So that's another benefit to getting the deposit up front. I just wanted to add that. Uh, to move over to TEDx, so here's the, the norm. Now, so when people say, what's the process of applying for TEDx? There's the norm, and then there's the, what I call, you know, the shortcuts or the hacks. So the norm is what most people do. And the norm means that if you don't know anybody at a TEDx event, what the norm looks like is you go on the TEDx website of the location you want to speak at. So let's say TEDx. Las Vegas or TEDx Reno or TEDx Canvas or uh, you know Boca Raton or whatever it is, you go on their website, find their nomination form, fill out the form, send it in, and this is only if they're looking because, uh, as you know, they probably each event probably only looks twice two months a year or less. So 
you also have to go to the website when they're looking because if not it'll usually say not accepting applications right now so you have to go to the website they have to be accepting applications you have to fill it out send it off and hope for the best and cross your fingers that's that's what the norm looks like to me that's not good enough to me that's like that's the lazy way of doing it if, if you know your odds are really low and there's so many better options and ways to do that so i'll give you a for instance one of the well, I'll give you one of the, the tips that I tell people and it's 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 one of those hacks that jumps up your odds by probably 20%. So and just to, to put that in perspective, the normal odds I figured out are between one and 10% of you landing a TEDx talk, if you don't know anybody and if you're doing it from scratch. So where does that come from? Uh, for the big events like your LA's New York's, they get about 2000 applications for five to 10 spots. So that's less than 1% meaning your odds are less than 1% of grabbing one of those five to 10 spots if you're among the 2,000. On the smaller ones, they get like 200, 150 applications for five to 10 spots. That's your 10%. So your odds are normally one in 10%. Well, what I'm gonna share with you now is a hack that I've learned that's helped increase the odds by about 20% is what I figured so far. And then each one, each hack I teach people, each layer increases it by another five or 10 or 20%. But this is a really big one. So think about the norm I just shared going to the website, filling out the application, hope for the best. Well, this hack I'm gonna share with you, you can actually do even when they're not looking yet. And in fact, I would say if they're not looking for another month yet, that would be the better time to do it. So what's the hack? Well, think about it this way, Mark. If you applied for that New York one and there's 2000 applications and your name's on there as well, unless you have an amazing, amazing, amazing theme that just blows their mind, or unless you have this crazy cool name that they go, oh, that's a cool name and they pay attention to you, or unless uh, you, have this really cool backstory, a signature story that they've heard in the news. Unless it's one of those things, odds are you're now amongst 2,000 people all just hoping mm -hmm. for the best. And they're looking at them getting tired, their eyes getting tired looking at these things going, I don't know which one to pick. And there's five people trying to decide. So now you've got to appeal to five, not just one. So your odds, as you can see, why it gets down to less than 1%. Yeah. But imagine this. What if when they go into that meeting, five organizers at that TEDx event in New York, let's say, and it'd be more than five in New York, but I'm using this as a general example. Uh, they're looking at the applications and they come across Merck's and say, how do I know this dude? Or they say to the other guy, this is the dude that shares my stuff. And all of a sudden they all start talking and saying, I'm connected with that dude as well. So imagine how big your odds go if they know who Mark is. So what does this involve? Where am I driving at with this? So what I recommend that people do is first of all, they need to find out who the organizers are behind the event. Now, here's, here's the teaser, Mark. The truth is, is that there's a whole nother step for how you can find out who the organizers are. That's another trick altogether. But there are some ways you can find them just on your own by research. You'll probably only find one or two though out of five or 10, whereas the system I use, I can help you find almost all of them. But here's the thing. Once you find out who the organizers are, then what do you do? Well, 99% of them are gonna be on social media, right? So you see where I'm going with this. Yeah. I want you to reach out and connect with them on Facebook, on LinkedIn. And once you're connected with them, what I want you to do is, now you, you can see if you resonate with them. If you don't agree with the stuff they share or their stuff they're sharing is hate speech or something, well, I'm not, don't right. share it. Yeah, get on the radar. But as long as you agree with what they talk about and you're a fan of what they're sharing anyway, why not then start liking their stuff, commenting, sharing it after you're connected with them. And then think about this. If you do that for a month or so, and then you see that they're starting to look and you reach out to each one of them and say, or even just one of them, but say, hey, Jim, you know, I've been connected with you for a little bit now and I see that you're actually that one of the organizers with TEDx New York. I'm just wondering, what's the process if I want it to be considered? And so now what happens is Jim goes, oh, I'm glad you asked, Mark, and I see you've been sharing my stuff. Thanks so much. Yeah, if you want to send your application in, 
But now here's what happens. When it goes in, now Jim knows to watch for yours. And if you've done that with four or five really well, even if you only reached out to the main organizer, the main of the five to ask that, when they get in their discussions, they're all going to start bringing up Mark because they all know him and he's been sharing all their stuff. So now your odds, and I say 20% conservatively, go up dramatically because now you're on their radar rather than just the application that came across the desk. So when you asked how do people go around getting the red, that red dot and how do they get the, their red letters behind their name, that's, you know, that's a start. So I told you what the normal process is, just finding. And that's what, if, you, if a person wants to wing it on their own, what you really would do is you just search the name of the location you want to go to or go on ted.com and find the location, find them their website. Hopefully they have one. If they do, then find a nomination form. If they're looking, then fill it out and send it in and cross your fingers. That's the norm. That's what the process most people follow is. And then all I've done is figured out how to trick the system. And last week, for instance, or two weeks ago, two of our, our students just landed their first TEDx talks after trying for over a year on their own. So the system works. But anyway, so I teach people a whole bunch of little, we'll call them hacks, because uh, I think your listeners will be familiar with that term. But really, they're just shortcuts that I've discovered that just simply increase your odds over the normal process. So that's a TEDx in a nutshell. And we can, you, you know, you can ask me questions where you can dive deeper into why do a TEDx talk or the benefits or anything. But that you asked about the process. So that's what the process looks like. Well, I mean, like the, I mean, that's really solid. Like I like the engagement on social media because uh, I mean, if you are in a name of, you know, 2000 people, like, uh, like they don't know you unless you go up in front of them. Uh, so it's definitely good to do that. One thing I would suggest though, don't stop at the like, also do the comment because I've seen a bunch of Facebook posts where it say this person, this person, like the 99 other people also like this post. But if you look at any social network, like I think Instagram is the biggest example of this. You'll see a picture with like 500 likes that maybe just had five comments. So I would say leave comments because that's, um, like there are fewer comments than there are going to be likes. Likes liking something is a lot easier. So take the time to leave the comment. That is my suggestion. Uh, I'm wondering. I mean, that TEDx. Like I feel like a lot of people know why it's important for them to get on that stage and how it affects their career. Uh, is there anything other than like what people know that it can do? Yeah. So here's what I'll share, Mark. I think this is a good uh, tip for people as well. One of the things that's happening now is there's, there's it's a catch 22. There's a lot more TEDx talks, meaning there's a lot more TEDx events around the world. So people would think, okay, well that would ruin or lower the credibility or it'd be easier to get on the stage, but that's not happened because there's been, as there's more of them, the reason there's more is because there's way more demand and people want to get on the stages. So here's the challenge with that. So there's more TEDx events than ever. There's more people applying TEDx events than ever. I don't really think it's changed the ratios. I think it's just as hard to get the talk and it's still just as prestigious for that reason. But here's the one thing that people are missing the boat on now. Because of that challenge, what's, makes it, what's really challenging now, uh, because of the new challenge of so many people competing and so many TEDx events, the new challenge now is your TEDx talk has a lower chance of going viral. So mm -hmm. what that means is your organic potential from the talk, your organic uh, result as a result, I mean, it will say your organic, um, let's say, uh, reactive stuff, meaning the stuff that comes in its own passive, if you will, the reactive reach outs you're going to get are probably lower because there's less people that watch the video, if that makes sense, the talk. So why is that significant to know now? Does that mean 
that your talk's not worth as much as it used to be? In my opinion, the answer is no. The value of having a TEDx talk is still as big, but you need to reframe how you focus on it. And what I mean by that is some people, a lot of people over the years ago, I want a TEDx talk because it'll go viral. They just thought it automatically it goes viral. Sure. It'll go viral and then I'm gonna, everybody's gonna reach out to me to book me. But here's what's happening now. We're seeing a lot of TEDx talks with 50 views, 100 views, 200 views versus a million views. And in fact, my last, my third TEDx talk, uh, right now, if I last I looked at it, it's only around 1,000 views. And to be honest, I haven't tried to push it. I haven't, I don't even, I hardly even posted it. So that's on me as well. And you know yourself, once you miss the, miss the momentum period, you've missed the window. Well, right. I was uh, speaking and doing massive amount of interviews and everything when it came out. I just was like, all right, it's out. And But here's the thing. There's a reason is because I know to get it to go viral, is it, there's a whole bunch behind that. And I didn't have the time to try to do it. So here's how I looked at it, though. It all comes down to, I'm going to say 80% of the benefit from your TEDx talk is how you leverage it. So I'm, and I'm going to go a little bit... Uh, branding on you here, but, and I, I mean the people listening, but Mark, you know this, the as seen on banners, the, you know, as seen in um, Forbes, as um, heard on entrepreneurs podcast or Forbes book radio, those things have as much or more value after you had the appearance, if you market them right, than they do during the appearance. So if you're in Good Morning America, even how many people see you a million people, but they might not be the right audience for you. But think of what you can do with that America, uh, Good Morning America clip or just even uh, the logo on the website for the rest of your life by saying, I was seen on Good Morning America. It gains a credibility for you. So much the same way Forbes, all the other ones I mentioned, if you can say I was seen on or heard on Forbes, I was seen or heard on Entrepreneur, all of a sudden, those things start increasing your credibility. And so what I'm getting at here is what people need to realize is the real biggest uh, value, if you will, from your TEDx talk is what you do with the fact that you had a TEDx talk after the TEDx talk is aired. So are you adding it to your email signature and saying as seen on uh, TEDx Wilmington, let's say, and then you have the link. Uh, are you putting it on Facebook and at least, uh, or maybe posting it on Facebook every now and then when you're being considered for a talk, a speaking engagement, don't just send your sizzle reel or even you might not even need to use a sizzle reel. To be honest, now I, my sizzle reels are older than dirt because now I just send the TEDx talks and I get booked from those. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes now the thing that people go, wow, he's a TEDx talk and they view you different than the other speakers they're considering. Uh, also, you can have that as seen on banner and include your TEDx logo. So my point out of all this, another tip I can give you is if you do secure the TEDx talk and you do get on that stage, don't, and I've seen a lot of people do this, don't just let TEDx put the video up and then let it end there. The truth is your real value is going to be everything you do after the video goes up. And that doesn't just mean pushing people to the video. That means how many people you let know that you are a TEDx speaker, and that can even include your bio that they read when you're about to walk on stage. So Mark, that would be a big takeaway is make sure you leverage it properly. And in fact, in our program, I say that we don't just help you secure the TEDx talk, we help you secure it, then deliver it, because as you know, a TEDx talk is different than other talks. So delivering is we help you craft it. And then the third component, which is I think is important as the rest, is leveraging that talk for the rest of your life. So that's the tip I would give people. Yeah, I like that leveraging idea because I mean, a lot of, I mean, if you are a TEDx speaker, no one knows unless you say it and your bot and your email signature, that's a really great place on your website, on your bios, like put it everywhere that you're a TEDx talker. That definitely helps you get on more stages. One of the questions I have though, is you mentioned uh, earlier how uh, you got that early deposit and then you're able to apply for the following year. You also mentioned that you were able to quickly get a new, uh, speaking gig in there. 
Uh, so I'm wondering if you could share with us uh, your approach to finding all these gigs because I mean, I mean, just finding that many gigs is hard enough and then you got to apply to all of them. So I'm wondering if you could share how you find all of them. Yeah. So here's, and, and again, as you know, Mark, uh, I'm a full disclosure guy, but at the same time, uh, this is one of those areas I'm passionate about and I could probably uh, tell uh, people 10 different tips for finding lots of bookings. So I'm going to uh, reserve myself to one, just one strategy. And this is, I, I try to go to the one that was a game changer for me when I'm sharing just one. But basically, here's what I did. And I will, this is a caveat, it depends on what kind of talks you want. Some people want to speak at social media conferences or like New Media Summit, the one we were at. Some people want to speak at corporate events. Some people want to speak for associations. So like the um, Plumbing Association of America or what have you, uh, where it's members that pay a membership. So first of all, it depends on what kind of event you want to speak at. My answer will be different depending on that. But here's what I'll say. And this is, this is, this is an unpopular statement for people that are in our world, which is the online marketing world. But the truth is, and I think you know this deep down, Mark, Unless you're selling at the back of the room, typically speaking, the social media conferences, the conferences we love and go to and pay to go to, typically don't pay unless you're, uh, you know, unless you're a high level keynote speaker name, they typically don't pay as high fees as a corporate talk does. Like in other words, usually they'll bring you in and say, we'll pay for your travel, we'll pay for you to get here, we'll pay for your hotel at the most. Maybe they'll say, uh, we'll give you, you know, $1,000 honorarium. But mostly what they're going to say is you can sell from the stage, but we're not going to pay you a, a keynote fee. The exceptions would be the people like, for example, if you go to like social media examiner, when you, and I don't know this for a fact, I'm speaking at, based on guesses, but let's say a Guy Kawasaki or Murray Smith, they're probably getting a keynote fee. But when you go to the social media conference and you don't know all the speakers that are speaking, chances are they're not getting a fee. So if you want to get paid a fee, at the very least, and you want to be on the social media stages too, what I would say is split it. You know, do some of your work, corporate work, do some of your work on those stages. So now my answer for you is going to be based on the corporate side because that's where you're going to find there's more paid speaking opportunities. So I mentioned my evaluation form earlier. Uh, I'm just going to tell you, I mean, people can craft their own evaluation form. Uh, we give our, mine away during in our program for people to hack it as much as they want. But here's the key question you need to have on your evaluation form is, do you know of others who could benefit from a similar talk to the one I or Corey just presented right now? And if so, can we follow up with you to find out who that is? So what this is, is this is a question on your evaluation form that has people taking action to say, Mark, you should reach out to me. We're looking for somebody at our upcoming event. If you see what I mean, instead of them coming up to you after, after your talk, you're putting it on a form that's handed out. They don't have any pressure to come up to you afterward, but they can write on there, you should come and speak at our event, or you should reach out to us, there might be a fit. And that's where I get a ton of bookings and leads. Now, here's the catch to that. If you're not, if you don't have any paid bookings yet and you're brand new, what that might mean is you might reach out to an association or a chamber of commerce or a rotary or a board of trade or Toastmasters and get yourself a no fee or a non-paid booking. And then what you want to do is you want to have your evaluation forms brought with you to hand out to that group that didn't pay you to come in. And the hope is, is that some people in that room can then hire you to come in. They fill out the form and say, you know, reach out to us afterward. And that's where I end up getting probably still to this day, between 20 and 30% of my bookings come from that. And all it takes, which is really cool, is you just have to reach out to the first one and then it builds the momentum from there because for that first talk, if you have 100 people in the room, 10 might say, hey, you should come and reach out to us. And so that, that having an evaluation form and getting that question filled out is huge. Now, 
what I had to do, I realized, is I had to craft the form with more questions than that because it couldn't seem like I was trying to get just a right. free business out of them. So I had to ease in, like, what did you learn that you could use tomorrow? Uh, what was your favorite thing you took away today? What did I not cover that you wish I would have? What's your opinion of today's presentation? Like, you have to layer it with other questions. But that evaluation form, I even have a trick for how it builds my newsletter. So I leave with probably... 80 people on my newsletter of 100 people in the room. And I also uh, leverage it to get a lot of testimonials from every single talk that I can use on multiple places. So that evaluation form has been one of my best friends. But when you ask how do I get bookings, it was one of my biggest discoveries was to develop that evaluation form and to let it bring me the bookings because they're already seeing me speak. They're right there in the moment. They're filling it out when it's hot and they go, I just, I love this guy. It's the perfect time to ask for a referral or a lead. Now here's the key added into that. The one catch is we're in the online world. The temptation is to want to get them to send it in digitally. But what I'm going to tell you from a lot of experience and testing if you try it digitally, you're going to get like 5% back. If you get them to fill it out on the spot before they leave, which will take them less than five minutes, your odds go up to like, well, I usually get about 90% back. And I have little tricks for how I do that, but I get about 90% of those filled out and they hand it back. If I try to get them to do it digitally, it's less than 5%. So the other takeaway here is if you're going to do an evaluation form, make it a printed copy and get them to fill it out on the spot. Yeah, that's a really great uh thing to think about, you know, digital, not as many people, but if you have the hard version, uh, definitely more people are going to get back to you. And there's certainly a lot of ways to incentivize people. You could offer like some kind of free uh, raffle or a gift to someone. If you submit this form, you qualify. So uh, there's certainly a lot of different ways that you can do that. Uh, this one final question though, because I know we want to talk about um, places we could find Corey and stuff like that. Uh, but I'm wondering if you could share with us, how do you get those forms on the tables? Like, do you just go like 15 minutes before the event and just put them all down one at a time? Do you have people help you out? Like, how does that, how do the forms actually get distributed? So another great question. And it, it really, it depends, Mark, on the nature of the event. So I'm right now booking uh, some public events for the end of May. Those are events I'm running myself. In that case, chances are, so this is a chances are because it could vary, but I'll usually bring on somebody to help me with the event. So I'll get them to hand them out. Uh, and so to answer your question too about where, I'll get them to put them, say, under the chairs. So that way when people come in, I can say, you know, there's an evaluation form under your chair. I'll touch on that later. And then at the end, I'll, I'll remind them of it and say, and here's one of my tricks for how I get them in is I'll say, you know, I'd love to thank you uh, for attending. I'd love for you to fill out an evaluation form. It'll take you like three minutes. By doing that, you're helping me help the next group because I'll get insight that helps me grow and I can carry it to the next one. But then at the same time, I'll say, and I'll do you a favor in return is I'd love to send you a free digital copy of my latest book. And then I'll say, so when you fill out your email address on the form, make sure you write book beside it so I know to send you a copy of the book. And that's how I end up getting a lot of them back. When I, I Most rooms I can get a lot back anyway, but that helps put it over the top. Uh, so what we do is we put them under the chair, whether it's me or whether it's somebody else, one of the two. Uh, usually and ideally if we're in the room early enough before they get there, so when they get there, it's already in. Uh, sometimes that's not possible if it's not and there's tables, then what I'll do is I'll put a stack on each table and just say, I'll, I'll mention this at the end. And then I always leave like, let's say five to 10 minutes to mention it. Uh, so that's how I would do it in that circumstance. If it's a corporate talk or uh, an association talk or like the social media one, like the new media summit we were at, then what I would do is I would, I would basically have somebody go around to the table and put them on those tables. So if there's eight people, they would, we would just estimate and say, put 10 per table and basically pass them out the tables. Ideally before people get there, worst case scenario, when people are just chatting before everything starts. So that's how I get them out. 
Corey, that is some excellent insight. I mean, I really like the idea of putting him on the chair because people are definitely going to see it that way. And I mean, I really like all the insights you shared with us today. This was an incredible episode, as I knew it was, because I mean, we saw each other at the New Media Summit. We've known each other for a while. So I hope you listening to this at home or during your commute, uh, you really enjoyed this episode. I know Corey has a TEDx uh, program. He referenced that a little bit. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the ways that we can find you. Yeah, absolutely. So here's the easy way, Mark, if somebody's interested in learning more about that program, it's, it's a pretty easy website. It's the speaking, pro- or sorry, sorry, I'll correct that. It's a pretty easy website for people to check out. Um, and, you know, we, I, I was lucky I got one of these websites where it kind of explains what it is in the title. Uh, so if people want to check out the program, it's easy. It's the TEDxprogram.com. So thetedxprogram.com, that's pretty easy. Uh, we do have a speaking program as well. Um, we touched on it a little bit about how people get paid bookings and all these things you were asking me that I learned in the trenches. I teach that in the program. That one, uh, people can find more details at thespeakingprogram.com. So you'll see I have this uh, luck factor with me in getting great domain names. And then finally, if people just want to connect with me and learn more about me and maybe they're not ready to get into speaking yet, uh, they can actually uh, check me out or find me at thatspeakerguy.com. So another easy domain to remember, thatspeakerguy.com. And that has all the social links, uh, links to programs, uh, TEDx talks, all the stuff's on there. Corey, thank you so much for sharing those resources with us and all the great insights throughout our time together. It was such a pleasure to have you on the Profitable Public Speaking Podcast. Awesome, Mark. It was an absolute pleasure. As like you said, I knew it would be because we know each other quite well. I love the work you're doing. I love that you never stop. And as a little uh, plug for you guys, uh, and I don't even know if if you know about this yet because it was just uh, arranged late yesterday, but we're planning to have uh, your mother, your brother, and you on our show tomorrow. So <laughs> tomorrow, that's relative to when people hear this. Uh, but we are having the uh, your birdie family on our show as well. So I can't wait to share your story. And I love all the work you're doing. So thanks for making magic happen, Mark.